0: If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 28. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, you can open up to the book of Psalms, which is right in the middle of your Bible there, and then just head right. It's the first major prophet, the first prophet period. Um, large book of Isaiah, and we'll be in chapter Twenty-eight. It was almost a year ago that we took a break from our study in this Old Testament prophet, and I had no intentions of waiting this long um, until resuming this study, but of course, uh, a lot of our plans changed unexpectedly in the past year. Um, and so after such a long hiatus, and given that Isaiah is such a large book, I want to do my best to briefly and quickly get us back into things by revisiting the first verse of the book. I'm going to try to be as brief as possible so we don't get bogged down too quickly. But Isaiah 1:1 says, "The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah." Now, in that simple sentence we're given the basic context of Isaiah's vision that's recorded in the following 66 chapters. We're, we're told that this prophecy was about and, and delivered to Judah and specifically the city of Jerusalem, which was Isaiah's hometown. You'll remember that the kingdom of Israel had, had split in two during the reign of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the grandson of King David, which resulted in two kingdoms with, with Israel in the north and, and Judah in the south, each with their own strings of kings. And this is how it had been for 200 years before Isaiah began his ministry. The time period just before Isaiah prophesied had been a a very prosperous time, but Isaiah was about to warn Judah that her enemies were coming, and they were coming very soon. The time period of these kings of Judah mentioned in verse 1 spans about 100 years, and it's recorded for us in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles This makes the prophecy of Isaiah what we would call pre-exilic, which is not that complicated. It just means that this vision was announced to Judah before the Babylonians came and took them into exile. Uh, Structurally, Isaiah splits really easily into actually two parts, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. However, it's also helpful to, to break the book into three major sections, thinking about how they describe the Messiah the promised deliverer that would come and save Israel. In chapters 1 through 39, he is held forth as the Davidic king. In chapters 40 through 55, uh, Isaiah opens our eyes to an unexpected picture of the Messiah, which is the suffering servant. And then in chapters 56 through through 66, we, we look to the future and we find the Messiah is an anointed warrior or a conqueror. And as the Messiah is slowly revealed as king and servant and conqueror, there's a movement happening from the beginning of the book to the end. We are moving from threat to promise, from judgment to salvation, from the sinful city of Jerusalem in the early chapters to the holy new Jerusalem at the close of the book. And so, with all that, we come to our text for today, which is Isaiah 28, and it's part of that first major section of the book. But it's also the beginning of a beginning of its own section that runs from Isaiah 28 through 39. And my hope is that we will cover those verses uh, in this period before, just before Easter. So we will cover all these chapters, and it's it, it begins a series of six woes uh, in the ESV, which I'll be reading from. It's translated as just. Ah, A-H, which, which all lead into this historical account in verses 36 through 39. And these verses also, beginning in, in chapter 28, we have a new king. There's a, a transfer of power that has happened uh, from wicked king Ahaz to that of good king Hezekiah, who is the central character in the narrative of chapters 36 through 39. Now, uh, if none of that made sense, let me get you to the theme. Here's the theme the theme of these chapters and that get to the heart of what we need to learn, it continues actually the theme of the the first chapters. And God is asking his people, who will you trust? Who will you listen to? Who will you put your hope in? I don't know if you remember our study in the first 27 chapters, but that was a continual theme. Where is our hope? Who and or what are we trusting in? And in today's passage, we are told our only hope in life and death is the unfading king and the faithful cornerstone. That's our big idea. Our only hope in life and death is the unfading king and the faithful cornerstone. David Jackman writes that the entire Bible is God preaching God to us. And here, God is held forth as a solid foundation for every hope that you have. Isaiah reveals the, the Lord and he calls us to trust in him alone because God's judgment is certain for those who reject him, as is his hope, his, his help for those that trust in him. And so as God is preaching God to us today from this chapter, we're going to see four truths. These will be our four big ideas. So I'm going to say them all right now and then I'll repeat them as we go. Uh, I've got two nevers and two always. God's crown never fades. God's word always accomplishes its purpose. God's covenant never will be broken. And God's ways always can be trusted. And when we see all that, we're going to say our only hope in life and death is in the unfading king and the faithful cornerstone. As I was reading through this chapter this week and remembering Isaiah, I remembered one of my favorite just sentences from the prophecy of Isaiah at the, in the, that first part that we studied. Isaiah said at one point, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so my hope is that our faith in the Lord of glory would be firm and that we would affirm in the sea of pseudo-saviors that our only hope in life and death is the unfading king and the faithful cornerstone. So I want you to hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 28. It's a little bit longer chapter so roll up your sleeves and here we go we're going to try to understand this prophecy of isaiah isaiah 28 beginning in verse 1 it begins prophesying actually to the northern kingdom ah the proud crown of the drunkards of ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine behold the lord has one who is mighty And strong like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand. The the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. Verse 5 and 6, a a surprising word of hope. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Prophecy now turns to Judah in verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Verses 9 and 10. These are the words of the leaders of Judah to Isaiah. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overflowing whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message for the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap one'self in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed strange is his deed and to work his work alien is his work. now therefore do not scoff lest your bonds be made strong for I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. This final section, some agricultural illustrations. Verse 23, give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and, and emmer, As the border, for he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent In wisdom. When I first read that this past week, I was pretty intimidated by it. But I want to tell you that uh, the word of the Lord is near to us and it is clear. And this chapter may look confusing, but I promise you it cracks open beautifully. And there's wonderful truth in here. So I encourage you to, to hear the word of the Lord. It begins, this chapter begins with a word to Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the largest tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, um, and, and so this word goes to the northern kingdom, and it could stretch through verse 14, but I think actually the word to, to the northern kingdom just runs through verse 7. This prophecy is directed toward, is, toward Israel and to their capital city of Samaria, and it serves as a warning to Judah. Remember, Isaiah is prophesying to Judah, and it serves as a warning to them. And then the remainder of the chapter asks the implied question of whether or not Judah is going to suffer the same fate as their brother's In the north, will they trust in themselves and be destroyed by their enemies, or will they hope in the Lord, the unfading King? The city of Samaria sat on a mountain that almost had the appearance of a crown or a, a garland. And Isaiah speaks of the proud but fading crown of those in Israel. He's likely speaking primarily to the leaders of Israel, leaders who were drunk on their pride and on their power as well as on actual wine. And their drunkenness signals how selfish and self-indulgent they were such that they neglected God's law and they ignored the needs of God's people. But their crown, Isaiah says, was going to fade very soon. And Isaiah says that they would be gobbled up like the first fig of the season. It's this picture of of a farmer coming upon the first ripe fruit of the season. And he plucks it and he swallows it without barely a thought. Maybe you've gone out to a farm and you've you've picked fruit. Have you ever done that? And when you're out there, one of the things you get to do is you get to pick some fruit and eat it, right? That's just what you're allowed to do. And it's so easy. You know, you're picking some apples and you just eat one and it tastes delicious. Or some blueberries, you could just keep popping those in as you're picking them and putting them in your basket. And so Israel, who thought themselves so strong and glorious, they were in fact ripe for the picking. And they would be carelessly consumed by invading armies, enacting God's judgment. The prideful people on the mountain would be swallowed up without a thought. In contrast to Samaria's judgment, Isaiah offers a surprising and a sudden word of hope in verses five and six, where he announces this, God's crown never fades. Unlike Samaria, God's crown never fades. God offers those who trust in him to trade in their false and fading crown for a true and enduring one. He calls us into a kingdom of justice, meaning a kingdom where everything is set right and one where he fights for us and he defends us. So the question becomes, why would we ever trust our own fading crowns? Why would we ever trust our own false power? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord because his crown Never fades. That's what Judah needed to hear. And from a focus on Israel, Isaiah then does turn directly to Judah in verse 7. He draws the parallels between the two kingdoms with these images of drunkenness. But he also specifically calls out the leaders of Jerusalem, the, the prophets and the priests in particular, drunk prophets and priests. And he calls them out for refusing to listen to the word of the Lord that was spoken by Isaiah. Their drunkenness is an issue, but mainly their drunkenness is an issue because it leads to a refusal to hear the word of the Lord. Their their pride and their self-indulgence makes their ears deaf to what God is saying. Now, there's a background to this, and the background is made clear in the later chapters. But the background is that Judah had made an alliance with Egypt. Rather than trusting the Lord to be their protector, they were hoping in the military might of Egypt to save them from the surrounding nations, especially from the Assyrians. Verses seven and eight describe this banquet of sorts that has divulged into a drunken debacle where every table is filled with the vomit of the revelers. It's not a pretty picture, is it? Now, it could be that this banquet was a celebration of the leaders of Judah of their new alliance that they had made with Egypt. They're celebrating the apparent security provided by Egypt's army. But then Isaiah walks in the back doors of the party and he calls the people there. He says to the leaders that they should forsake their hope in Egypt and they should just trust the Lord. Don't trust Egypt, he says, just trust the Lord. But Isaiah is mocked in verses 9 and 10. They say that Isaiah's counsel, trust the Lord, is like something you say to a child. It's do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. Eugene Peterson in the message renders it like this. This is their response to Isaiah's prophecy. He says, we're not babies in diapers to be talked down to by such as you. Da, 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 blah, 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 blah. That's a good little girl. That's a good little boy. That's what they thought of Isaiah's prophecy. Here's the question though. Is that how we hear God's word? Do we take God's call to simply trust in him? Do we take it as simplistic and unrealistic? Do we imagine that God somehow doesn't understand the real world and how the real world works? Sure, faith is good for little children, but real-world problems require more complicated real-world solutions, much more complicated than just obey God's Word and pray and be in a church community. Do we think that way about God's Word? If, like Judah's leaders, we respond to the simple call to childlike faith with scorn and scoffing, we are forgetting something. We're forgetting that God's Word always accomplishes His purpose. God's word always accomplishes his purpose. God will always accomplish his purpose. His word never returns void. He will always get his point across, and our human wisdom, divorced from faith, will always fail. And so Isaiah says in verses 11 through 13 that the judgment for such rejection of his words would be that a foreign nation would teach them the lesson that they did not receive from Isaiah. It it was spoken originally to them from Isaiah's mouth in Hebrew, and they rejected it. So what's God going to do? He's going to send an invading army into them, and they're going to learn that they need to trust the Lord through the lips of a foreign nation, because God's word is always going to accomplish its purpose. By God's grace, I pray that it wouldn't take similar extreme measures for us to believe the call to simple faith in the midst of complicated situations. Rather, I hope that we can learn and we can remember that God's word, even when it seems simplistic, it always accomplishes its purpose. In verse 14, Isaiah takes the words of, of Judah's leaders and he reveals them a little bit more. He kind of shows what they're really saying. There's this idea of a covenant with, with death. They thought that they had made an alliance with a nation that would fight for them. They, they thought that nothing could sweep them away now that they were lined up with, with Egypt. But Isaiah tells them that their alliance was not with Egypt. But who was it with? It's with death. And they would be swept away in the flood of judgment. Think about Egypt. When you think about Egypt and you think about the landscape of Egypt, what comes to your mind? Say something loud. Desert and sand. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Egypt is as a foundation to trust in. They look like this strong refuge, but what are they? They're a foundation of sand. But another refuge, another shelter was offered to God's people in verse 16. What is it? It's a cornerstone. A cornerstone that affirms that God's covenant will never be broken. God's covenant will never be broken. Here's the saddest thing about this chapter. It's that God's covenant people, the people that were in a covenant relationship with God had made a covenant with Egypt of all people that they had been delivered from slavery from. They made a covenant with Egypt and thereby they made a covenant with death. But the Lord is calling them to remember their covenant with him, a covenant of life. I was reading, refreshing myself on the book of Isaiah and I read this that just parallels so closely what Isaiah is saying here in, 20, in chapter 28. There's an oracle against Egypt in Isaiah 19. And, and part of that oracle against Egypt says in chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, it says, The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Isn't that interesting, the parallels between those two chapters? Trusting in the cornerstones of Egypt is going to lead to the same drunken confusion that they already had, but the Lord was laying a different cornerstone. The Lord was laying a different foundation for his people, a, a cornerstone who, if they followed its lines, it would lead to the building of a city of justice and a city of righteousness, a city that could never be swept away in judgment. What is the cornerstone? Better yet, who is the cornerstone, right? Right. It's the king of Jerusalem. It's the greater David that was to come. It's, it's the ruler with an unfading crown. It's the king whose word always accomplishes his purpose. The tested stone, the sure foundation. Isaiah was calling the people of Judah to trust in the Lord, but he's also calling them to trust in the coming Messiah. And so he's calling us today to trust in Jesus, who is the cornerstone. It's hard to miss it if you've read the New Testament because in the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, Peter, they all announce that Jesus is the cornerstone. And though he was rejected and refused, rejected for for refuges like Egypt, he is chosen and precious. Though he was mocked like, like Isaiah, though he was killed, God has raised him up and revealed that our only hope in life and death is the faithful cornerstone. Jesus Christ. Only if we build on Jesus can we stand when the whip and the flood come because he has taken on death and hell for us and he's risen triumphantly. If we reject him, then he will fight against us. The sad thing about that verse 21 about how God fought at Mount Perizim and how God fought in the Valley of Gibeon that Jake read earlier about the, the Valley of Gibeon what, what God's saying is, if you reject me, I, I will fight against you as I fought for you. If we choose to, to rest in other refuges, God will fight against us. If we choose to rest in other refuges, Isaiah says that what we are hoping in will be like a bed that is too small with a blanket that is too narrow. Can I show you a picture of what that looks like? This is when I need the mic that goes with me. I never do this. This is a. This is my mattress, okay. And I brought it for someone. I brought it for Ken. What do you think, Ken? Big enough? I don't think. I don't think. I think it's a little short for you. I also brought you a blanket. So this will be good for you, right? That's the image, isn't it? Have you ever slept in a bed that's too short for you? Or, or had a blanket that's too small and you're trying to stay warm? It's, it, this is an extreme example of that. But here's what God is saying. He's saying that this bed and this blanket is what every other refuge other than Jesus look, looks like. If you are hoping in money, in your money, your wisdom, your friends and family, your job, if you're hoping in a political party or a president, if you're hoping in a lottery ticket, if you're hoping in some stroke of good luck, if you're hoping in anything else, this is what your hope looks like. And this is the kind of comfort that it will bring you. (laughs) It's too short and it can bring you no rest. So Isaiah offers us a choice. Here's your choice of refuges in the midst of a storm and a flood and of judgment over for sin. Here's your, your choice of refuges in the difficulties of life. You can have a toddler bed in the middle of a field with a hand towel as your blanket. That's one option. Or you can run into the strong fortress. That is Jesus. The strong fortress built on the cornerstone. That is Jesus. So choose what you like. (laughs) But know this, that our only hope in life and death is the unfading king and the faithful cornerstone. He alone can give us rest and hope. Verses 23 through 29, then Isaiah ends with some illustrations that call us to trust the wisdom and the counsel of God. That's what he ends with, that God is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. He speaks of both plowing and reaping, and he explains that there are ways that these things are done. If you're, if you're a farmer, you know how to, how to do certain things. And if you're a farmer, you're not continually tilling. You don't just till. There's a point when that stops. And when harvest comes, there's a way to harvest things. Some crops are harvested in different ways than others. And in a similar way, God plants and plows and harvests in this world in the way that he works as he deals with his people. And we know that he is wise and he uses the best practices to accomplish his purpose, accomplish his purposes. He, he won't continually plow without stopping. He will do what's necessary to see that his people bear fruit, the fruit of faith. And so we find this fourth idea that God's ways always can be trusted. When we're confused about what's going on, when we don't understand what he's doing, God's ways always can be trusted. Mark Twain is credited as as saying that history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And and while there is mystery to how God works, there are are also ways that he usually works. There's a pattern to how God works in this world, how he plows and how he reaps. And so we're called to be students of the word and students of church history. We need to to read the scriptures, we need to read the history books, and we need to be asking ourselves, how does God usually work in the world so that we can see it? Because there's a pattern to it, and that helps us to understand what he's doing. And in addition to the word and the history, we should be experts in the gospel because that is the clearest way of how God works in the deepest ways in this world. And so in some ways we come full circle back to a, a people who scoffed at God's word And in contrast, we are encouraged by this passage to hear the word of the Lord, to hear God's word, to listen to it, to to hold firmly to the simplicity of childlike faith, not to scoff at that, not to think that that's too simplistic, but to say, you know what? Trust and faith in God is really all I need. And we're also called to delve into the depths of God's wise and wonderful ways in the world to, to think, how is he working? What is he doing? And to, to, be, to marvel at that. And the way we bring those two things together of, of not scoffing at faith and of delving deep into the mysteries of God's word, is we find that how does God usually work in the world? How does God accomplish his great purposes in the world? Through people living by faith. How does God do the deep things? What is his wonderful and wise counsel? How is it usually accomplished? It's by people with childlike faith trusting him. That's how he does amazing things in this world. People who hear the simple message of the gospel and who are crazy enough to believe because of God's grace that the good news of Jesus can change the world and that that's all we need. We don't need other refuges to trust in. We just need Christ. So brothers and sisters, I might uh, end this afternoon by saying, don't be ashamed of simple faith. Don't be ashamed of just trusting the Lord. Don't scoff at that. Rather, may our lives be shaped by the truth that our only hope in life and in death is the unfading King and the faithful cornerstone. Because we know this about God, God's crown never fades. Every other crown will. God's word always accomplishes its purpose. God's covenant never will be broken and God's ways always can be trusted. I was listening to a song this week by a group called Mission House and this theme just kept running through my head and I thought about this chapter and about who Jesus is. It's just this. So this is just a, just overflowing worship to Jesus says, there is no hope, there is no future, there is no freedom outside of you. There is no joy, there is no salvation, there is no living outside of you. So don't look for anything outside of Jesus. Don't think that there's something better or bigger that you can put your hope and your your faith in. The only hope that we have is in our unfading King and in Jesus, the faithful cornerstone who has lived and died, and risen again and is coming again for us. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word, and then I will pray for us. Father, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and that is enough. We don't have to trust anything else. And if we're trusting in anything else, it is futile and a waste of our time. Lord, reveal our hearts. Show us the ways that we're not trusting in you. Show us the ways we're doubting the simplicity of faith in you and reveal the depth of your ways to us. Help us to see how you are working in amazing ways in this world. And we would not doubt your power and your strength to do these wonderful things. Lord, fill us with faith. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, who is the one true king who is coming again and will reign forever with an unfading crown. Thank you for Jesus, who is the faithful cornerstone that we can build our lives on. Thank you that he is a refuge for us. Pray all this in his name. Amen.